Warning, the following podcast contains adult language and childish comedy. Listener discretion is advised. And now, please adjust your headphone volume to an unreasonable level and enjoy the most dynamic and electrifyingly entertaining podcast ever to conquer cyberspace. Hello, friends, and welcome to the most powerful podcast ever created, the amazing pop culture podcast starring Dags and Rez. Today, we have a powerful episode, and as always, somewhere deep in cyberspace, is the assistant manager of this powerful podcast, DJ Micah Rezin. Hey, Dags, how are you doing? Hello, amazing friends. Glad to be back. God, we're excited. Powerful episode today, Micah Rez. We are going to be talking about the ultimate rock band, Rush from the Great White North, and specifically, we're going to be talking about their most powerful album, their eighth album, Moving Pictures. Whoa. Now, Mike Rez is new to Rush. You know a couple songs, right? Well, it turns out I know more Rush than I thought I knew. Whoa. Um, not, not because of just this album, but because I went back to some of their more popular songs, and I was like, oh. I guess I do know more Rush than I thought. I am a Rush fan from back in the 80s, so I tasked Micah Rez to listen to the powerful album, Moving Pictures. So what yes, we're going to do... it's not a long album, so I can do it a couple times. Yeah, quite enjoyable. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit. I'll tell the people, a couple, three people that don't know about Rush. We'll talk a little bit about Rush, <laughs> and we'll get into the actual album. We'll go track by track, and we'll get our thoughts on it. Rush is a Canadian rock band. They're formed in Toronto in 1968. And the lineup is Getty Lee on bass and vocals, Alex Lifeson guitars, and Neil Peart on drums and percussion. Now, the band started originally in 1968. The lineup was a little different back then. He had John Rutsey on drums, Jeff Jones was bass, and Alex Lifeson was guitar. And what, <laughs> what happened was kind of funny because uh, the bassist, Jeff Jones, front man, kind of went to a party, didn't show up for one of their uh, shows, so they brought in. Getty Lee. They put out one album. It was called Rush, and that had the powerful song Working Man. But right after that, 1974, John Rutsey was replaced by the drummer Neil Peart. And after that, the rest is history. They cranked out all these powerful albums. I'm going to go through here, Michael Rez and Amazing Fans. 1974, Rush. And then we had Fly by Night, 75, and also in 75, Crest of Steel. 2112, another powerful album, 1976, 1977, A Farewell to Kings, 1978, Hemispheres, 1980, Permanent Waves, and then the album we're going to be talking about, 1981, Moving Pictures, then it went on and on, Signals, 1982, Grace Under Pressure, 84, Power Windows, 85, Hold Your Fire, 87, Presto, 89, Roll the Bones, 91, Counterparts, 1993, Hest for Echo, 96, Vapor Trails, 2002, Snake and Arrows, 2007, and Clockwork Angels, 2012. Micah Rez and Amazing Friends. I got to see every concert starting right after Moving Pictures. (laughs) 
I started in 84. Well, I actually, I actually missed Signals because I was playing in Duluth. And we're from... What? Yep. They didn't come to the cities. I don't know why. Well, because Duluth is closer to Canada. Save on gas money. How's it going, eh? So <laughs> I started in 84. I saw Grace Under Pressure and all the other powerful tours. So I was excited when I thought up this powerful episode about talking about Rush. And I wanted to, you know, you get Rush fanboys together, which is cool. But I wanted to get together Mike Rez is because, it yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny. If you go to a Rush concert, it's basically yeah. just 40 year old bald guys in the audience. Nice. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, so back to it. So I wanted to get together with Mike Rez because you're a fan of music, but you don't know a lot about Rush, correct? Correct. I do not know a lot about Rush. Um, so this was when we were doing, I started diving into this research. I didn't know there were so many albums that they had. Uh, and not only that, but when Snakes and Arrows came out, it was such a big deal. And people were making such a big deal out of Snakes and Arrows. that I thought, well, this must have been like their first album in like 20 years. <laughs> but no, that's not what happened at all. They were releasing albums up all up until that. But for some reason, Snakes and Arrows was like a big, huge release for some people. So, because I, I I know a couple of uh, big Rush bands other than yourself, and they were all over Snakes and Arrows for some reason. I got the chance to catch a flying guitar pick, and I have that in the collection. Nice. Yes, I believe that was on the Snakes and Arrows tour. I got to check it. Crazy. I won a, a copy of Snakes and Arrows on the radio, um, and then uh, I gave it to one of the, the Rush fanboys that I knew. What? Yeah. Well, I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna listen to it. I just wanted to win something on the radio. If you only knew back then. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. A, I think I did an okay thing there. Well, it was very nice yeah. of you, but you should have kept Some, it. Somebody was gonna enjoy it more than me, so yes. might as well. Let so them let's, have it. let's get into it, Mike Arez. Moving pictures. Sure. You want to talk a little bit about moving pictures? Well, as you mentioned, moving pictures is their eighth studio album. Um, and it was released February 12th, 1981. Um, and it was released through Anthem Records uh, to support. Uh, that was after they toured to support their previous album, Permanent Waves, which, which you had mentioned. Now, this one is the one that became... The, an instant commercial success, unlike their other albums, which were had successful songs on it. This whole album became a commercial success. It ranked really high in Canada, uh, hit number three in the United States and the United Kingdom. I actually think it hit number one in Canada, if my recollection is correct. Um, yes. And it's still their highest selling album in the United States with five million copies sold, Dags. That's pretty epic. So what they did? What is it? What's that? Yeah. What? Why? Why did it take so long for like for this to be the album? That's what I want to know. Well, I think part of it is they used to play these epically long songs. Correct. Yeah, progressive rock. Their first album was more of a hard rock, you know, Mm -hmm. but they would just jam, you know, and these epically long songs, and they weren't radio friendly. Not at all. So what they did is they uh, got together with Terry Brown, the co-producer. And they wrote songs that were more, you know, compressed, tighter song structures, shorter, you know, more, quote, radio friendly. Sure. I mean, if you look at the album, listen to it, I mean, it's just mixed so perfectly. It's put together so nicely. 
you know, you think of albums like the Black Album, Metallica, or, or um, ACDC, Back in Black. Uh-huh. They're just like perfect albums. Front to back, you know, they play them front to back. They're tight. They sound good. They're everything about them is awesome. And and Moving Pictures is one of those albums. It's just like uh, Fleetwood Mac. A lot of their albums are. Oh, Fleetwood Mac. Tight, yes. Tight I mean, if you look if you look at Rumors, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. The work. One that, of my favorite. Yes. The work they put into producing that, mixing it, it's it's a masterpiece. It really is. And and Rush, Moving Pictures. Is another album like that. It's a masterpiece. You're only saying that because there's a painting on the cover that they're carrying. Oh yeah, let's talk about the cover. <laughs> yeah, the cover looks pretty uh pretty wild. It looks like there's uh like a, an art heist or something going on, or maybe they're moving some pictures into a museum. I can't really tell, but yeah. the guys in red suits and jumpsuits. Well, the funny so. thing is you've heard of double entendre. This is a triple entendre. Ooh. Yes. Because which <laughs> What you have is you have uh, people that you got the people crying because because mm-hmm. they're emotionally moved, <laughs> and then they're actually moving pictures, and then the the back cover has a film crew making a movie, moving picture of the scene. But oh what, my God. what's cool is they, it features the dogs playing poker painting, which is <laughs> which is entitled "The Friend in Need." And the beauty of that is the powerful trivia is it's from Brown and Bigelow which is a company from St. Paul. Oh, there you go. So that's our uh, powerful claim to fame, Dogs Playing Poker, which is a series of paintings. <laughs> but the one on that, on Moving Pictures, was actually called A Friend in Need. Okay, that's the one in the middle, right? That, so we need, so, and there also, there's also a picture of Joan of Arc being burned at the stake. Yep, I see that one. Yep. Yeah, the one in the middle is uh, Dogs <laughs> Playing Poker. Nice. Yes. It's a cool album cover. I mean. It's, you know, it's not your typical. No, I mean, when you get into Rush, you realize they have a sense of humor. So they have a lot of, like in their concerts, if you watch them, they'll have little things on stage they call distractions. There'll be like rotisserie chickens being cooked and washing machines and inflatable. It's really fun. Oh, it sounds hilariously like a great time. It is. (laughs) Trust me, once you... Once you go to a Rush uh, concert, you're never the same. It's well, there's a, no more Rush concerts, so. Oh, we'll see. Never say never. Religious you experiment. Think so? All right, we'll talk about that yes. at the end, why there won't be any. Or why they said there won't be any. The recording, how this thing happened, and it, it was about, about June in 1980, when they were entering the, ending their tour of Permanent mm-hmm. Waves. They were doing sound checks and stuff, and they got the idea that we, Neil Peart especially wanted to write a new album instead of what, what they wanted to do is write a, have a second album just of their live performances. But Neil, sure. Neil Peart wanted to re- record like new music, new material. So what they did is they, they took a short break and then they got together with uh, Max Webster, which is a cool Canadian band, and they recorded a song called Battle Scar. And during that session when they were recording that, the lyricist from Max Webster, his name is Pai Dubois, he he brought to him a, a song that the, he thought they should record, and that turned into Tom Sawyer. And that was the first track. That's the first track of the album. So with that said, Mike Arez, let's get into track one, Tom Sawyer. Sure, absolutely. So Tom Sawyer, 
was released uh, in their 1981 album, I obviously. Um, and uh, it was uh, written by, like you said, that was the, with the help of uh, Max Webster. Uh, Getty Lee has referred to this track as the band's defining piece from the early 80s, which I'm going to have to agree because this was the very first song that I ever heard of uh, from Rush. Uh, and I think that was the one that, like, everybody's that was born uh, that can remember start listening to music that was born in, like, the late 70s and you start listening to music and remembering it sometime in the early 80s that this was the song. Yeah, I agree. Rush, everybody knows. I agree. So yeah, it's a, obviously the one that I know. <laughs> yes, the quintessential Rush song, Tom Sawyer. Right. Yeah. You know, Getty Lee, Neil, uh, Peart. I always want to say Peart. I, yeah, I always said Peart too. Peart. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Alex Lesson um, helped write it uh, with, uh, is it Pai Dubois? Yeah. I'm so, not, I don't, I'm not French Canadian, but I'm assuming yeah, it's Pai Dubois. Pai Dubois. Yes. Um, and, uh, they wrote this one. This, like you said, it's the most popular one that they know, or that people know. Uh, it peaked number twenty-four in Canada and number forty-four in the U.S. I bet if you release that song now, it charts a lot higher uh, than number forty-four uh, in the U.S. That's just my opinion, but I think it's got that kind of uh, that sound people are kind of digging right now. That kind of really, I don't know, with the and that guitar and that synth, the synth in Tom Sawyer is pretty cool. So, uh, which is something that a lot of pop bands are starting to add to their music now. So, yeah, it was originally a poem he wrote was, it was called Lewis, the lawyer. And then they changed it, modified it. And then they came up, put you know, music to the poem. Mm -hmm. What's cool is that growling synthesizer sound, you know, in the beginning, Getty Lee was experimenting and he was using an Oberheim OBX, which is a, old school synthesizer you're breaking down the instruments look at you well you know i got to <laughs> and also what's cool is uh you know normally he plays a uh, rickenbacker 4001 on there his bass but in this one he actually used a fender jazz bass and he got it from a pawn shop believe it or not that's pretty sweet yeah so i want to get your thoughts on that on that song then tom sawyer mm-hmm that was the first song on the first track on the album. So when you put it on, what did you think? Um, on this album, uh, when I listened to it, uh, it was familiar. So it wasn't, you know, to me, it was just, okay, this is the 4,000th time I've heard this song. Um, but like I said, you can enjoy, um, you know, like that synthesizer sound. That that's, you know, that's iconic. You know, it's Tom Sawyer when uh when you hear that sound um and it's probably you know if, if you gun to my head this is probably my favorite rush song so it probably has a lot to do with the fact that this was the first one that i ever heard so interesting um, and this is the one that was pounded in your head over and over and over again as a youngster but uh but yeah i like actually i like tom sawyer so um i don't know uh much more i can say other than that you know it's iconic everybody knows who it is when you hear it not like some of the other songs on here on this record you can actually hear sometimes when artists write music um really close together to to get out an album all of them sound alike and none of them do that on this album you get a different sound on interesting one. yeah but tom sawyer is a good 
is a good start off to this album. So bass, guitar, drums, vocals, what, what's one thing you remember from the song? Um, other than the synthesizer, it is um, probably the, 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 the singing of it. Um, Getty Lee's got that voice uh, that you don't forget. It's kind of like the Eddie Vedder voice or, um, you know, like Johnny Cash. Those are more baritone and he's more um, higher pitched, not really falsetto like the Bee Gees, but you know it's Rush when you hear Carly. I think the intro, I mean, it gets you right away. It just goes into it. There is no intro. Just boom, it's right into it. <laughs> right. And like I always say, every song should have a powerful drum fill. This has many drum fills. The yeah, it seems that these songs are the, uh, on this album, it's either drum or guitar. Um, and you get some synthesizer, but it it's not as prevalent as the guitar or the drum. No other no other Rush albums were more synth heavy, but this I mean the bass, doo, 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 the guitar, the drums. I mean, the song is a masterpiece. Difficult for him to play. Difficult for all of them to play. Powerful song. Track one of Moving Pictures. Tom Sawyer. Let's go to track two. Red Barchetta, or if you're Italian, Red Barchetta is how they Ooh, pronounce it. Really? Yep. So this song this, was, what's, go ahead. I was going to say, this song sounds like, like bread, like focaccia. Wow. So I was, I was more getting hungry. Yes. And while I was listening to the song. So this song was inspired by the futuristic short story, A Nice Morning Drive. And it came out in a 1973 issue of Road and Track magazine. It was written by a dude named Richard Foster. So the, the basic story of this is about, how cars had to become so more safe, they made them so they could handle like a 50-mile-an-hour crash, and they basically were just driving tanks. And uh, they call them <laughs> MSVs. Sure. Modern safety vehicles. But what dudes were doing, they were driving them, and they were just like crashing into people. Intentionally? Yes, intentionally. <laughs> so dude. Neil Peart read this, and he basically changed it up into the song that we know, Red Barchetta. What Barchetta means in Italian, literally, it's like a small boat. Hmm. So, like the car is a little boat. So I thought that was kind of cool. It turns out Neil Peart's favorite car is the 1948 Ferrari. So this song, what's cool is, it's a driving song. We had a top five driving songs. And I didn't include this because I didn't want to be too literal on it. But it is an ultimate driving song. <laughs> right. And in this song, he talks about, in the lyrics, he talks about they created a motor law where they banned vehicles. And his uncle has one of the illegal cars. And that's the Red Barchetta. And he's driving around and they're chasing him in it. <laughs> it's a pretty epic song. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it on track two off of Moving Pictures, Red Barchetta. This song it wasn't one of my favorite songs um, on the on the album. Um, we'll get to my favorite one later on because it's not one of the the more popular ones that came off of this album. And uh, but yeah, it's it's they're good at telling stories, and you can kind of tell when I was researching this, like the ones that um, tell a better story are the ones that Neil Peart had a hand in writing. He had he, he does some. I don't know how he's just a good storyteller, and he can do that in the lyrics 
um, or a drummer, you know, <laughs> people always, you know, bring on the drummer, but he was talented in more ways than just, than just swinging sticks around. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a, it's an okay song. It's not my favorite one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's good. What I like about it, I like the intro. It slowly builds. And then I like the outro where it slowly fades away. It's a pretty cool song. I like, I like the guitar solo in there is, is pretty epic. And you, you just imagine yourself like in a ragtop or something, just driving down the highway, <laughs> you know, wind in your hair, even though, yeah. I, even though I don't have hair, but <laughs> it's an epic song. It's, it's a happy song. It's, it's a light song. I, I like it. I like the intro. I like the outro. I like the guitar solo. Uh, I, these guitar fills that are in this album, are, do they, does Brush do guitar fills throughout? Like, do a lot of their albums have a lot of guitar fills and some guitar songs? solos? Yeah. Oh, yes. Alex Lifeson is a premier guitar player. Okay. I'm asking because, so this, we're going to go, I'm going to throw it back to, to Fleetwood Mac because Lindsey Buckingham was really good at putting in guitar solos in songs that he wrote or helped write just so he could show off. That you could do a two-minute guitar solo on every song when they play it live. <laughs> well, that, so I was wondering yeah. if that had something that they they did intentionally just to show off, or whoever was writing it was like, "Well, screw this! I'm putting in another guitar solo because I fucking rock as a guitarist." I don't think it's a show off. There, each one of them is an expert in their instrument. Sure, Eddie Lee is an incredible bassist. Alex Life's an incredible guitarist. Neil Peart, incredible percussionist. So they all get to showcase their music. They 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 make the music together. I mean, it's right. it's, a, it's a pretty group thing, and I don't think re- ego is really involved. Even though Alex Lifeson, I mean, he's an extrovert, but he just feels the music and he listens to something, and they just put together, you know, what they feel, and they're gonna put. Oh, I'm gonna put my guitar in here, the bass in here, and it all works. Yeah. So let's go to number three, track three, which is Y Y Z, and not the zipper. No. Interesting. <laughs> yes. So, so, so what's cool about YYZ is it's basically it's the airport identification code of the Toronto airport. YYZ. Yeah, I read that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and uh those guys, Neil Peart, they heard the identifier, they do it in Morse code. So it's D D D D D D D D D D D D D D D D D so he basically just re, uh, reproduced that on drums, cymbal, and they just built a song around it. And what's cool is they had a song in La Via Strangiato, which is this epic instrumental song that you need to hear. Amazing friends, if you haven't, you got to check that song out. But they wanted to make another instrumental song on this album, but they didn't want it, you know, like nine minutes long. So they kind of pared it down. And basically, this song is cool because it's just Neil and Getty Lee just jamming, and it just and talk about drum fills. And what's cool about this song is when they play it live, like the live album Exit Stage Left, which came out in '81, or Show of Hands, which came out in '89. They go into his epic drum solo, so you got to watch the drum solo, Michael <laughs> Rez. It's just incredible how they go into this song YYZ, and then it goes into the drum solo. So what were your thoughts on this song, YYZ? Well, first I want to tell the amazing friend, this instrumental was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental, and it lost to Behind the Cam- <clears throat> excuse me, Behind My Camel by the Police. So 
Interesting. That's, that's uh, how good this song keep, is. Keep the police in the back of your mind because that's going right. to come back. All right. It's also been covered by Godsmack and Primus as well. But uh, yes, a uh, two- little story. Primus, I sure. saw them warm up for Rush on one of the tours. Really? Yeah, big, nice. huge. And they were going to actually do a whole tour of them playing Rush songs, but that got kind of canceled with the whole oh. the mask deal going on here. So Sure. But I was going to say with YYZ, right about the two minute and 20 second mark, I got, you know, uh, Eruption by Van Halen. Yes. It, I got that kind of vibe. Uh, and around that mark, you can you can hear uh, something that sounds familiar, but again, kind of it sounds very Eruption-esque uh, around the 220 mark of YYZ. But it's really good. I was actually expecting them to... Uh, start singing at any moment i was kind of surprised that you know you get about a minute into it and you realize this is an instrumental song but it was really good i like this one you did cool yeah i mean it's cool the jamming between uh getty lee and neil peart in it uh another jamming song that's kind of cool that one you don't think of with the band queen is dragon attack because there's a cool one on dragon attack on the album the game where the, the bass and the drums just jam together. So check that out, guys. That is Dragon Attack off the album The Game from Queen. But yeah, I love YYZ. I mean, it's I love Rush instrumentals because that way they just they just go to town. Mm-hmm. They're not worried about writing the song. I mean, they're just jamming. And, <laughs> and this is basically just a jam session, you know, turned into a song. Sure. And and why I love it too is because it reminds me of all the concerts I got to see and when they you know Pierre goes into this drum solo, which is epic. You can kinda of tell it, you know, they're just jamming and it's it's cool they can they turn that into a song. It's like four and a half four and a half minutes long, something like that. Epic song. So, yeah, it's pretty sweet. All right, next up, Limelight. What can you tell us about Limelight, Michael Rez? Well it was released as a single and charted number four on the U.S. top tracks. Um, it also charted at number 55 on the U.S. Hot 100, and uh, it remains one of Russia's most popular songs commercially. Now, get this, Dags. It was the B-side of YYZ. Uh, or, I'm sorry, YYZ was the B-side uh, to that song. So it's kind of, I like YYZ better than Limelight. Really? But Limelight was the one that I was, like, the second one that I knew <laughs> from Rush. And that was because when I interned at KQ here in the in the Twin Cities, um, KQ ninety two, that Limelight, Tom Sawyer, and uh, Closer to the Heart are the three big Rush songs that they play. Um, and I was kind of delighted actually to know that Limelight was on this album as well because I was like, okay, I'm familiar with this one too. Um, which, if you were to ask me, those are the two; those would have been my two favorite. But after you hear this whole album you realize that there's more good music on this album besides the two that they always play all the time. But yeah, uh, Limelight is uh, is good, but I like the B-side better. Uh, Neil Peart uh, commented that the band's commercial success and the fame uh, that it demands that came with rock star status, uh, which one of the reasons uh, that they wrote this song. Um, it was the, the, like living in the limelight, and it tells a good story, so guess who wrote it? You know, what did I tell you? So uh, Neil Peart uh, wanted to just kind of 
tell what it was like to be in a band and all of a sudden now they're rock stars. Um, so this was what uh, his take on it is. And if you listen to the lyrics, it talks about cameras flashing and, you know, people wanting your attention all the time and just the, the pressure it is to uh, keep up the, the rock star image. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson are extroverts and they're like, I don't get it. You know, uh, Neil, <laughs> Neil, Neil, they wanted to be rock stars and they were rock stars. And Neil was an introvert and Getty Lee was seeing how he's more sensitive to things. Sure. So he was more about, you know, writing the lyrics, mastering the drum kit there and Alex Lifeson. And he, he, he would tell you too, he likes to party. You know, the whole, you know, living like a rock star. But, sure. I mean, the intro to that guitar riff in the beginning, I mean, it's fantastic. Yep. And then when uh, Alex Lifeson does that melancholy guitar solo, I mean, you just feel the sadness. Sure. I mean, it's, I love that song. It used to be, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite on here, but... <laughs> But Limelight is definitely one of my favorites. I mean, the guitar, that soulful guitar, that melancholy, just that mystical guitar solo is fantastic. The intro, the guitar riff, and then the drum come in. I mean, it's just, oh, my God. Powerful right. song. Yeah. That guitar solo was written on a modified Fender Stratocaster. Did you know that? I did. That's powerful. Nice. Powerful research, Mike Rez. Thank you. Thank I'm the you most much. powerful band ever created. <laughs> <laughs> now let's uh, flip the record over, Mike Rez. All right, let's. Uh, track number five, The Camera Eye. Now, what are your thoughts on that, Mike Rez, The Camera Eye? Speaking of powerful synths, this song is chock full of them, but. I think it's too much because it reminded me of a Trans-Siberia Orchestra <laughs> is uh, what it sounded like. It's, it's like, I don't know how to explain it, but if you know, like the, uh, uh, like Mannheim Steamroller, Trans-Siberia Orchestra type music around Christmas time, this is what this song reminded me of. Um, so I, I couldn't really get that into it, but, uh, you know, when you're mowing the lawn, you know, it, it gets you. It gets you from one place to the other. It kind of fills time on this album, I believe. It, I don't know. I'm sure they put some good thought into this song, wrote it, thought it was the you know one of the best songs that they've written, and that's why it's on this album. But for me, it just fills time. So I like the camera. It's a super long song. I mean, it's over ten minutes long, and it, it's right. two parts. It's it's basically called New York and London, and it's basically him when he was walking around and hanging out in the cities, you know, he's feeling the rhythm of the city. Right. Neil Peart, right? Yes. Yeah. See storyteller. Yes. And, and uh, (laughs) a little trivia in the beginning of it, they have a clip from, uh, 1978 Superman. Really? So that's part? I guess I didn't even pay attention to that part. Yeah. You'll have to play it again. It's just basically little things. You'll, you'll hear stuff like, this is it, Mac, and how about a tomato and fresh fruit, just random weird stuff. You hear the honking, and, and I just like the synth, it starts out, wow, 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 and then the kind of the marching drum comes in, and then it's got the, it's got the powerful drum fills, like I said. Every song's got to have a powerful drum fill. So, you have to, yeah. Yeah. So Camera Eye is an epic song. 
it's it's a happy song too. It's just it's him hanging out in the cities, and I get a vibe that he's content and he likes it. He likes everything going on, all the complexity, all the rhythms, you know, all the sounds of the cars honking and people talking. Uh, versus the suburbs where those guys are from in Toronto. Witch hunt. Oh, this song scared me when I was a kid. I'm not gonna lie to you. Because <laughs> you just hear the the uh, the evil crowd with their pitchforks and torches and God, it's a cool song. What about the jack in the box kind of sound in the beginning? Yes. Kinda, oh yes, yes. It gets, yeah. Exactly. The so with this song, it starts out like I said, the mob. You can just hear them. It was basically just a bunch of people. They got together. They recorded outside, and they uh, they were pounding the whiskey, and they recorded all their friends just <laughs> yelling. But it twelve, you know, twelve separate tracks, by the way. Yeah, that's cool. But it's it's just I I like it because it's um it's just a creepy song, but then it kind of ends up kind of lighter, brighter, if that makes sense sure but it but it's so cool all the different instruments i mean he's got like neil's got bass drums wood chimes glockenspiels all these powerful percussive instruments is what i'm trying to say and uh hugh syme the cover designer he uh did the synth on there nice yeah so it's just a cool creepy song i like it what would you think what are your thoughts about it um well like i said it's got the uh that cool jack-in-the-box sound, which is what uh, drew me to it. Uh, it's got that heavy guitar in it as well. This one is my favorite song on the album. Wow, actually. really? Yeah, so I, I really, really dug it. And I think it was because of like like the crowd noise in the beginning and then that jack-in-the-box sound kind of draws you in. Yes, and the guitar. So I really like this one. This is, uh, I think, of the... Of the songs on this album that I went back to listen to just to to see if there's anything I missed on it. This is the one that I did that on. Um, but it was funny when you say that it scared you as a kid because this was one of the first of four songs in what they called their fear series. Yes. So that was it. They they got what they wanted out of it. Yes. So they had uh, three other ones: uh, the weapon from Signals, uh, the enemy within, and Freeze. So there was like a the series of songs that were a little darker yes uh, that they put in their albums oh, and those, scared the crap out yeah, of yeah those so. primal drums the night is yeah. black without a moon <laughs> dum, dum, dum. and then no and then how it ends just kind of it ends in like brightness like there's sure. almost there's almost hope <laughs> god that's a fucking cool song yeah no they didn't even play this song live for three years uh, until I, three years after they released it, uh, Grace Under Pressure tour. So that was, uh, I wonder if it was because there was so much involved with uh, instruments and they just were trying to figure out a way to do that on stage. Let's go to the final song of this powerful album, which is Vital Signs. What are your thoughts before, let's just get into it right now. I want to just ask you, what are your okay. thoughts on Vital Signs? It, uh, it was good. Um, it has... So it's kind of got like a like a reggae guitar, yes, in it, um, which you notice. Um, I didn't really pick up that it was reggae influenced right away until I started researching this song. But after I read that part, I went back to listen to it, and yeah, you can hear that influence on there. 
but it's a it's a good song vital signs it's not one of those time fillers like i just said uh the other one was but it was uh it was good it was all right like it's not my favorite rush song um i can take it or leave it on this album but um you can hear the the influences they say that that are in this song what's interesting you mentioned the police uh some people don't know that Neil Peart was actually uh, influenced by Stuart Copeland of the police. Oh, so, really? So if you listen to this, the way the guitar is played and the drumming, also on songs like New World Man, that came out in 82, you can, you can hear the police influences, which is pretty interesting because you wouldn't think like a reggae, ska-type group like the police would influence aggressive rock of, the, of Rush, but it does. I mean, Neil liked that that type of drumming, you know, he did the traditional, you know, big drum kit, but then he got into that, that ska like reggae beat of Stuart Copeland of the police. So I found that interesting. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm playing this part in my head and I don't you mention the police. I can hear like message in a bottle, Like that's kind of got some type of, which is, yeah, which is a great song and how it breaks down into different parts is definitely progressive too. Right. yeah, you know. Yeah, I've, you can. Now that you say, I can hear. Yeah, I can hear the influence on each other. Sure. Yeah, the way he's playing on the hi hat and the cymbals and the, it's a great song. Right. Great way to end the album. Vital signs. So all and in it, all, out I was of all those, say peak number forty-one in the UK. Yeah. So. If you get a chance, guys, and you, Mike Arez, watch some of the videos of moving pictures. Because it's cool, they recorded out in the out in the wintertime out in the wilderness of Canada. So it's kind of interesting. It's really cool to see the studio, see them perform the songs. That's kind of cliche, isn't it? What's that? Because Canada, they have to record in the in the winter. Well, it's Canada. What you got to do? <laughs> you got to drink beer and you got to wear your toque and eat back bacon and. I mean, Canada is so powerful. I mean, you think about it. Um, Second City, I mean, John Candy, all the comedians that came out of there. You think of Rush. I mean, oh my God, what a powerful country. Justin Timberlake. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. Powerful country, powerful album, moving pictures. So, what are your thoughts of this entire album, Mike Arez? As a whole, I could see why people like this album. Two of the six Rush songs that I know are on this album. And then it also sucked me in with a couple more. So overall, if we're going to rank this, um, what, what should we rank? Are we going to do buggy wheels on this or are we going to change it to like drumsticks on this one? We should do drumsticks on this one. I'm going to give it 3.75 drumsticks. So Interesting. Yes. As far as Rush albums, it's really difficult for me to pick a favorite album. You know, it's so, you just get into it because they have so many good albums. This is probably their best album. It's hard for me to say that because there's other ones and people get into arguments with me, but <laughs> I'm giving this five Glockenspiels out of five Glockenspiels. Whoa, whoa. That's a lot of Glockenspiels. Perfection. Everyone is playing great. It's recorded awesome, mixed awesome, artwork awesome. It's Rush. Powerful. 
<laughs> I think you're in love with Rush. Oh my god! First, you know, here I'll tell you. You, know what they, you want to okay, hear a little story? I'm going to tell you stories of Rush. Yes. Yes. A lot of people want to know what my origin is. Well, in the garage, my grandpa, God rest his soul, his walker was in there, and that's how I started doing powerful dips on his walker, and I did pull-ups. <laughs> I did pull-ups on the rafters in the garage, fingertip pull-ups. That's why I'm so powerful. And I played the Rush album, Moving Pictures, just over and over and over again. Just had to put the penny on the stylus just to keep that on there. Put the needle on the record when the drum beat goes like this. God, that was a great album. We just open up the garage door and all the kids would walk by and we'd have our powerful workout sessions in the garage with Moving Pictures blaring, sun is shining. Muscles are glistening. God, powerful 80s. This song, this album came out in the 80s, the most powerful decade when the world peaked. Perfection. Now, your workout was only 40 minutes and three seconds long. No, I said it went over and over. I just kept playing the album (laughs) over and over. That's why we had to put the penny on there to keep it from skipping. Keep it from skipping, sure. Yes. Powerful album. Warped final will do it. Well, Michael Rez, did you have a good time? reminiscing listening to moving pictures all the way through i did yes and uh they got uh you know like a handful of spins from me on spotify so the i feel like i'm I'm probably kind of got robbed so i I listened to it on spotify and on spotify's 2011 remastered version so i you know you didn't get to hear the original mix and master when it was originally released because spotify doesn't have that copy uh so i think what i'm gonna probably gonna have to do just for the the feel of what it was like to listen to it as it was released is go back and find it on youtube or something and find the whole the whole album that way um but it probably um and this is not an insult but it probably does make it sound better if you listen to that remastered copy Yes, and what's uh, funny is it was actually recorded digitally on a 48-track machine. Wow. Yes. It was, uh, yeah, Moving Pictures is uh, their first digitally produced album by uh, Brown. Interesting, yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's, I love the album. I got the honor of seeing them live perform. A lot of people did, which is cool. I mean, to take the album and reproduce it live and just to have that energy it was fantastic. Now, Micah Rez, we're going to wrap this up. We have some music. We do. We have uh, the newest release from Galaxy 80, who is a uh, chill wave artist here and around the Twin Cities area. Uh, this song is called Infinite Mirrors. It features Decisive Koala. You can find it on Bandcamp if you go to galaxy80.bandcamp dot com and this will be on uh his late his soon to be released album and uh so you'll be able to get that there's another song on bandcamp as well that will be on that album uh but check out galaxy80.bandcamp.com that's where you'll find this uh sweet chill wave tune well we hope you guys enjoy this powerful episode we just ask you one thing please tell a friend about our podcast Make sure you check out our merch. We've got new merch out. Just go to the links. Uh, follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Amazing Pop Pod, Instagram, Amazing 
Pop Culture Podcast. Like our Facebook page. We're everywhere on social media. Check us out. And uh, our podcast is available everywhere fine podcasts are found. Please leave a review and a rating. And until next time, you've just enjoyed the amazing Pop Culture Podcast.
you for listening to the Amazing Pop Culture Podcast. The Amazing Pop Culture Podcast is available everywhere fine podcasts are found. Please leave a rating and review where you listen to podcasts. Like and follow the Amazing Pop Culture Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And shop our Amazing Pop Culture merch. This has been an Amazing Pop Culture Podcast production.